Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Well, greetings and welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter. And along with me is Jonathan Pritchett. And we're taking you along with us. Today is the day. This is the season of documentaries. What you just saw is the trailer for a documentary that I filmed in Turkey um, and stayed there for over a month two years ago. Uh, or at least, yeah, two years ago. And, uh, and it's never seen the light of day. So I've gotten permission to release it um, on our website uh, for a cost that I have to pretty well give to the people who are making it, but I just want it out there. And, uh, so watch for that. Hopefully within the next week, people have, people who've known about it have asked about it and people that are followers of our show actually helped to write the script. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And Nick Quint's out in the audience. Nick Quint. He helped us. And, uh, I think Nick Quint wrote, uh, Laodicea. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's jump in here with some questions. And oh, and I said it's a season of documentaries because you should look forward to that, which, by the way, is a documentary filmed on location. Um, But you were same time you weren't in front of a green screen the whole time. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. But at the same time, you should also check out uh, today Inspiring Philosophies documentary, which drops at five o'clock. Yeah, it's good time. Uh, we watched that. We got a sneak peek. <coughs> yeah, and it was funny because Modern Day Debates just had a debate between um, uh, somebody and somebody. Um, I'm trying to think of the name. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Jim Majors and somebody else uh, on something related to, well, was Moses a real person or whatever? But then it also got into the Exodus and whether the Exodus really happened. And having already seen Inspiring Philosophies documentary, we're going to see that t- today. And that debate was from two days yesterday, and I think some of it was on old information. So um, anyway, pretty cool. So uh, let's see here. We got, we got super, super chats, chats already. This is a Q&A day all day. If you're, tip, if you're used to coming to this channel and seeing response videos, this is a little different. This is where if we had a hair, we'd let it down. And, uh, and so you can ask anything now, you want. Th- this is where we've been doing this about once a month now because this is where we... Atheists have been so boring on the internet that we have nothing else to talk about and respond to, so we just do a Q&A, which is part of our show towards the end of our discussions, but here the whole thing is based on that. So, Yep, and Eddie Vasquez, thank you for that super chat. We so appreciate that. Here you go. Get yourself something nice. Thank you so, so much. Will I really do. appreciate that. Glue for our set, right, because the trailer was so awesome, it blew some of the panels off the off the set so yeah you all don't see this but this set is like the millennium falcon and every time we stop between adventures we have to rebuild the whole yes. thing basically by we i mean i yes <laughs> uh thank you mj jackson mj jackson oh by the way go catch his uh he did a debate here recently and then he also 
uh, did a follow-up uh, with uh, Chris Bryan Samuel. Uh, so y'all want to check that out. Um, the Both of the follow-ups are as good as the debate, but the debate was really good. I guess it was against Mike Moses, but um, I think that was his name. But it was a good debate. So MJ Jackson, thank you for the super chat. And he says, what are the differences between Dr. Lycona's argument for the resurrection and Dr. William Lane Craig's version of it? Number well, of facts, three well, that, versus two. Yeah, that, that yeah. would be something. Um, you're going to, so traditionally Mike Lycona would not use gospel stuff in his case. Originally, when he was, when he first started debating, it may get into the gospels, but at some point he just got to where he was just focusing primarily on Paul, avoiding all the need to deal with gospel, con acclaimed gospel contradictions and all these kind of things. Also the, uh, Paul's epistles are earlier. Well, yeah, that's so, that, yeah, it goes with you got the creed in First Corinthians fifteen, yeah. three through seven, and possibly eight, but probably seven. And so, uh, what happened was, uh, he debated Bart Ehrman, and Bart Ehrman had his whole thing about the gospels ready, and like Conan didn't even talk about the gospels, so it didn't didn't matter. But um, some Christians, my understanding is, some Christians in the audience felt like. Well, no, if he's challenging the Gospels, we would have liked to have heard you deal with those challenges. He wrote a whole book about it. And so he set off to write a book about it. And, and so now he will include Gospels. But even after that book was, if not out, he had already written it. When he debated Matt Dillhunty in 2017, uh, he just stuck to Paul. He just used Paul. He didn't use the the, the gospel stuff. So that's going to be one difference. Where obviously William Lane Craig's going to focus. One of his things that we've heard him all all heard him say many times is that um, empty tombs. The tomb. The principle of embarrassment about it was discovered by a group of his female followers and things like that. So he uses some gospel stuff that I don't think you'll typically or traditionally find in Michael Icona. But what they're both going to do that's important and the same is they argue using only bedrock facts. Now, that's the thing. There's a number of bedrock facts, and for something to be considered a bedrock fact, it means that it has to enjoy the consensus of scholarship and be highly evidenced, which is probably why it enjoys the consensus of scholarship. But it has to have those two things going for it, and they both rely on bedrock facts. It's just which ones. In fact, I, I use a fact that William Lane Craig uses in Reasonable Faith, the book, but never talks about in his debates that I've heard, and that is Jesus' self-conception, that he thought of himself as... Um, as God's special agent to bring about the kingdom. And, and Mike uses that in in his uh, The Resurrection of Jesus' New Historiographical Approach. So it, that's in his book as well, as God's special eschatological agent, uh, Jesus' self-understanding. But that kind of tie in the book, he ties that in with the highly charged religious context uh, in which the resurrection occurred. So, um, But... That's a great book. If you haven't, well, both of Lycona's books are excellent, so you should you should get both. <clears throat> yeah. So here we have the muriological question: How do you respond to the claim that the Kalam fails because we've never witnessed anything begin to exist? We've only seen new combinations of pre-existing things. Now, there's... well, that's a non sequitur. It doesn't fail simply because we've never seen <laughs> we've never seen you know macroevolution either. But people aren't chunking that so. Uh, I, I don't know why that that would fail, but the it doesn't fail because of because we've never witnessed it. Um, I would say that, you know, if if you think about the defenses of each premise, it necessitates a beginning of the universe, both philosophically and scientifically. So I, I don't even understand why people think that would fail simply because we've never observed something begin to exist. 
Yeah. And in case anybody doesn't know what stands behind this question. So the idea is, okay, look, because it might seem intuitively obvious to you that things begin to exist. I mean, the chair I'm sitting on probably didn't exist several years ago and you know, those kind of things. But what uh, some skeptics want to point out in criticism is to say, well, hold on a second. Yes, that formation that we call chair um, didn't exist, but the atoms and fundamental particles that make up that object did already exist. So nothing came to exist any more than something came to exist when you put the pieces of a puzzle together and suddenly there's a picture there. And uh, that feels right when you first hear it. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it could give you some pause. The way I would also, in addition to what's already been laid out, what I would say about this is that something still, two things. First of all, we don't need there to have been, we don't need to argue this inductively, which is what I think the question presumes, is that we're saying something like, look, all of our experience uh, demonstrates that things that begin to exist have a cause for their coming into existence. But, um, you know, so there could be something that we find out in the future doesn't, but inductively we reason that it does. Um, that's not the way most of us argue. What we argue instead is um, that, no, if you're talking about literally nothing coming to exist, uh, which is what ultimately the argument gets to about the universe, that if you're saying that nothing comes to exist, then from nothing, something could come to exist. You're actually giving properties to nothingness. You're giving it the property. You're giving it properties. You're giving it powers. You're giving it possibilities, potentialities. You're diving into the Lawrence Krauss confusion. Yeah. You're giving it all these things, which means guess what? It's not nothing. If it's got properties or like, like it can possibly exist in the future and things like that, then these are things and it's not nothing anymore. So first of all, that's the way we reason that. The second thing that I would say is just because the fundamental particles of something never came into, or uh, we're not talking about them coming into existence when a chair comes to exist. Still, the collection, the formation came to exist. And that's an important thing. The formation that we call chair came to exist. And that's really what we're talking about um, is uh, the efficient cause of this thing. And so everything that begins to exist has an efficient cause. And that works even if this myriological thing stands. But um, but then, of course, you can also go a more folksy route of responding to someone who brings this argument. You can say, so are you telling us that you have always existed? Well, no, of course, I've never I, I haven't always existed. Oh, so you came to exist. Well, I'm just a collection of particles. Oh, so there is no you. Well, if there's no you, then I don't need to make responses to people who don't exist raising criticisms. So uh, you can go about it one of two ways. I think those all handle it. Yeah, so. before I forget, I was asked to respond to a video, and before I forget everything that I was going to say about it, I need to go ahead and get it out. Nick Ham, a student here at Trinity and a friend of the show and a friend of ours personally, uh, asked me to make a response to an eight-minute video from Doug Wilson about uh, Romans 9. And what was interesting in that video is he pretty much conceded it right at the very beginning, but then he made a claim that uh, he conceded that, yeah, it's more about corporate than it is individual individuals. But then he said, for some reason, the Arminian, and I guess that means anyone not Calvinist gets that upside down, but never really clear to me why. Uh, but I would argue that if you put the individual primary, you're getting it totally upside down, uh, not the other way around, because number one, nowhere in the text is Paul really dealing with individuals and the individuals that he mentions are basically types. Uh, even Thomas Schreiner, his Romans commentary has to acknowledge that. But moreover, in the ancient Mediterranean world, it's a collectivist culture, so the, the individual is always secondary anyway. So 
it would be anachronistic to, to assume an individual is reading in a text that you acknowledge is about corporate, but then say, but it's really also about individuals as well, because individuals only in the ancient world, they get their self-understanding and identity from how they relate to the larger in-group that they're a part of. So I agree with scholars such as Luke Timothy Johnson and others who said, and he said this in the four views on Paul or five views on Paul, but I can't remember where, but that Paul's in his epistles is not really concerned with individual salvation anywhere. And so uh, Nick Quint, the New Testament theologist, backed me up on this. If you're reading a Romans commentary, and one of the, the first things that they say after they say Romans is not a systematic theology book, and then treat it like one anyway, uh, they say, Paul is concerned about the salvation of the individual. You know you're not reading a serious commentary, because I think Johnson and others are right. Paul nowhere evidences in his epistles that salvation of the individual, how an individual converts from a lost person to a saved person, just isn't really on the radar of his uh, writings. So, the closest you get is probably in Luke Acts, where the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? If he's asking the question people think he's asking, which even N.T. Wright and others have cast a doubt that he's probably saying, saved, how do I get delivered out of this mess? Not really, how do I become a born-again Christian? But that's a separate issue. Paul's answer to him was, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But that's not where he ends. He says, you and your household. Because Paul is not merely looking at an individual converting to Christianity, if that was actually the you know, the, that was the question Paul responded to, whether or not that was the question being asked. So uh, Paul was even just looking past that because in the ancient world, again, most times, and when the, when the head of a household converts to a particular religion, the whole household typically follows. Now, that's not always. And in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about what happens if there's an unbelieving spouse or whatever. But generally, the assumption is whatever the head of the household is, um, the rest of the household will follow that same religion. So Paul, even in Luke's retelling of that, that account, shows Paul with even a more corporate uh, salvation and view there. So I would argue that he's wrong on every count other than saying that the Armenians are basically right. Uh, Doug Wilson is wrong. And it's he, he actually even gets... Uh, he, he, he doesn't quote the rest of Romans. And I'm not going to pick on him for getting Hosea... Uh, as the attribution to the Jacob I love when it was Malachi, where Jake, Paul says Jacob I love, he saw hated. We all make those kind of mistakes. But one I am going to pick on is he, he tries to go back to Romans 8 to shoehorn in individual salvation in election where he says, and nothing can separate us, which is plural, from the love of God. And then he ends there, but he doesn't go on to say that is in Christ Jesus because... The, the, the inseparable love of God is only in Christ Jesus, and the individual is only in Christ Jesus by faith. So uh, that doesn't even bail him out appealing to that. And if you read the rest of the verse, it's plural, and it's talking about where the location of the inseparable love of God is, which is in Christ Jesus. So I think that his response uh, to the Arminian position or whatever fails on all accounts. So I hope that that, that, that helps. And, and the only thing that he was right about is just basically conceding the point anyway. And then he just says a bunch of other stuff that's irrelevant. So Okay, transgender, transracial, lesbian Christian says... What? And thank you for that incredible <laughs> super chat. That, that is a mouthful. Keep it up. Your work is tremendously important, Will. Thank you. But shorter handle... It's not much longer than New Testament theologist. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but there's, you're skipping over a whole bunch of questions. Yeah, I am. 
Why? Are you doing that on purpose? Yes. Are they not any good? No, I'm trying to get to people that I haven't asked questions yet. Somebody had asked about Are either doing, you young I was in the middle of the sentence. Why or why not? Still was in the middle. Somebody had asked, do we have a Quran and a Book of Mormon here? I remember that question. Yeah, I've got both. And yeah, we've got both. And a Pearl of Great Price somewhere in here. Not in here, I think in my office. You upset that people always point out that you cut me off. Yeah, and so I'm... But I'm I just gave you 20 minutes of open air to teach a seminary lecture. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> are Time either, well spent. Are either, You're just itching to talk, aren't you? No, you can talk more. Here, here's the Pritchett cam. No, here it is. I, well, I can't see the Nope, questions. you're on now. Are either of you young earth creationists and why or why not? Um... I don't care. Braxton's so I'm gonna say no because I don't I don't really care about that issue. And Braxton uh is an old earth creationist and he can my my why I'm not is because I don't care how old the earth is and neither does the Bible. Uh Braxton, you can explain why you're not an old earth or why you're not a young earth creationist. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um take twenty minutes. It won't take me that long. The, Bible, the authors of the Bible nowhere apparently intend to convey to you how old the earth is. The way we get information about how old the earth is, as far as the Bible is concerned, is indirectly through, one, uh, discussing which genre, um, and two, um, how you interpret uh, what's being said within that genre. And so for, for me, I don't know how old the earth is. I, I understand young earth creationists making a case for how old they think the earth is. I can, I can understand that, biblically speaking, because they, there's ways to do that. But um, for someone who's an old earther or, or, or an I don't know earther like Jonathan, um, th- there's no way to get what you think the Bible is actually telling you about this uh, because the Bible doesn't intend to teach you this. So you just have to go with, okay, I don't think the Bible's talking about that. I don't think the genre of Genesis 1 is literal, straightforward, you know, 24 hours, 24 hours. I think it's a literary framework. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. White girl with Instagram black screen asks, uh, how do you interpret Matthew 24, 34 without Christ sounding like a failed prophet? Well, I, I don't think that he sounds like a failed prophet. Uh, there's any interpretation other than a contrived one. The closest that you can get to him sounding like a failed prophet is I think, and no offense to our audience. I think that that the impression of that could be seen if you take a dispensational reading of that passage. No offense to our dispensational friends, uh, but Christ's not a failed prophet because I, I think he was talking about 70 AD. So, And and actually, we have a debatey kind of discussion on this channel between Chris Date and Keith Sherlin, not about whether that was a false prophecy, but whether, but what understanding of it being the right, uh, a true prophecy is correct. So you can go check that out. It was only a few months ago. So just scan back yeah. to the videos. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think, it, no, I think it's got a picture of the two of them and it's got a picture of the YouTuber morgue. And it just says, it has him saying something like, was Jesus wrong? But even, and, and okay, I need to be fair. Uh, the dispensationalists have what I think is, well, the, that's not going to be fair if I say somewhat convoluted. They have a reading in which they do funny business. See, I'm not even being charitable. They do something weird with generation, and I, I don't know. It To me, it doesn't. Never Was mind, that your attempt to be they, nice? Was yeah, that you they, trying they, to talk nice? The dispensational reading is what creates <laughs> these kind of things. Don't be. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it's. 
Jesus, when he said this generation, he meant it. He's talking to this. Elizabeth Maines, as far as I know, Maines. She would have corrected me on it by now if it was different. Have I have a friend who recently discovered he's Jewish and is now keeping the Torah. He identifies as a Messianic Jew, I think, but is going Hebrew roots about it. Any advice? Yeah, well, Hebrew roots is bad, but if, if if a Jewish person wants to keep kosher and, and all of that, it, as long as they understand it, it does nothing for their justification. Um, I don't think Paul became a big fan of ham sandwiches after his conversion. So I, I, I think for Paul... Uh, and I think a lot of New Testament scholars uh, have have said this is that that became uh, a matter of indifference idea for us. So I mean, if you if you if you want to do that, great. I think like people like uh, uh, ask Doctor Brown, Michael Brown, does that, but he's not about Hebrew roots movement, and he understands that just being Jewish doesn't add anything or 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 or, you know, bolster any anything or contributes anything whatsoever to his justification. So as long as you as long as he understands that and doesn't think he's somehow more spiritual or or, or somehow more uh, part of God's elect than anyone else because he's doing that stuff. Uh, who cares? Let, let him. Let what him I what I know about Hebrew roots could fit into this coffee mug. Um, so you need to go to who is it that does that? I think it's true ID, right? A lot of a lot of the the UA. Well, uh, well, they they deal more with the Black Hebrew Israelite crowd too, mm-hmm. but but they they do some Hebrew roots. Well, anyway, I, I I'm not the person to go through about Hebrew roots. What I can tell you about Messianic Steve Jews, Gregg is he'll tell you all about it. Go to the Narrow Path, and he's got stuff on that. What I can tell you about Messianic Jews is um, they're pretty cool. They're I, awesome. I don't. Joel Lieberman, student here at Trinity College of the Bible Theological Seminary, is. An awesome Messianic Jew. Greg Grossman, professor of some of our Old Testament classes, is a Messianic Jew. Awesome guy. So. Well, and we have to make sure we know what we're talking about when we say Messianic Jew. Does that we're not talking about someone who has Jewish is Jewish genetically Jewish, but but yet is a Christian. I mean, many of them will be that, but yeah. uh, but that's not that's not what it is. Um, yeah. to, to be a Messianic Jew is to be a particular a part of a particular branch of Christianity. That as as you can probably tell from the discussion so far, um, does some things that are more typically thought of as suggestive of Customarily Jewish, Jewish a Jewish yeah. faith, but at the same time they're they're going to tell you that their Messiah is Jesus. Yeah, now so they're messianic are, Jews, and there are heretical messianic Jews who deny the divinity of Jesus, but but um, most of the ones that I know uh, and the ones that are part of Trinity do not do that. My understanding is that one of the difficulties with uh, this movement, uh, not, I mean, I guess this is a criticism, but I don't mean it that way, is my understanding is that they need something more akin to like a creed or a statement of faith that is all encompassing, you know. Oh, for Um, the person who asked, we don't only answer questions from people who pay, we answer questions first. From people who pay because I'm not even doing that right now. I'm answering. Yeah. I'm asking, answering the questions. Right. I, yeah, I know, but come. but I saw that. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's not what we do. But but we do try to put them first because, hey, they're supporting the show. I, I make sure that I, I don't I'll, apologize for that. And I think I, every 99 of the people watching understand that. <clears throat> it's just good etiquette to be, you know, to 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 uh, be that for your patrons and for the people who support you. You want to. So I, I just go through and answer the questions unless there's something off the wall and unless I've asked answered too many by the same person. 
but I always answer the super chats. I don't go out of order. I just always will answer the super chats no, unless I miss bump them up to the top. If, if I see, you know. Okay. Um, hey, Dr. Hunter. Hey, Swift C. When I hear deconversion stories, I get this fear of leaving the Christian faith in the future. Have you ever had this fear in your journey as a Christian? Yeah, because I mean, I don't think that that will ever, I don't, I, I would be really shocked to hear that that would ever happen to me. Of course, I guess a lot of people could say that about a lot of things. Well, but, you'd get fired and I'd become president. So, well, that would be a criticism. The atheists would say, many of them, Braxton's smart enough. He knows the truth. He could leave Christianity. He knows that he doesn't believe. Oh, this but he loves his anyway. job or whatever. But he wants that money, right? No way. You could make more money doing it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, but um, so I, I don't see that. It'd be like if you asked me, can you, do you ever, well, I guess it's more deep than this, but this is pretty deep. If you ask me, are you worried that you're going to cheat on your wife in the future? No. Are you worried you're going to defect from Christianity? No. Uh, but I, I can't say that there haven't been times where I worried that I might at some point be a non-Christian. I mean, I think that what I'm trying to get at is one of the biggest um, tools the enemy uses against the faithful is doubt. And it's not the doubt. It's always a bad thing. Okay. Atheists settle down. Doubt can be a good thing and helpful. Um, we don't want to praise doubt as our method for discovering truth the way that skepticism envisions it. But, um, but, but doubt's going to happen and it can be abused. See, what you have right here is what we would call an emotional fear, at least from the information you've given me here. Um, an in, an, let's distinguish between emotional and intellectual uh, concern or fear on this. The emotional doubt is when there's not an object. Like you're worried you might leave the faith in the future, but it's not because you can think of one particular thing that's making you doubt Christianity is true. It's just a it's just a faceless, blurred concern that in my future somewhere somehow I might not be a Christian. Um, so, Calvinism could be true, and you have evanescent grace, and God just so. Uh, but so that an intellectual fear would be if you told me you really did have some particular thing that was bothering you that say is an atheist argument or something. What you're doing is you're resonating with people's stories. When you hear de deconversion stories, people's stories can be very emotional. And I think we've all watched movies and films enough that at some point we've seen something happening to someone. And we thought that, that what was going on and being praised in the film was not a good thing, but yet at the same time, we are still emotionally involved and in that, and that can happen with a deconversion story. So this strikes me as what we would call emotional doubt. That's not to criticize it. We all experience it, yeah. but don't worry about it. And if it's an intellectual doubt in the future, or if there's one that stands behind this question, then that question needs to be addressed. All right. <coughs> okay. Let's see what else we've got well, here. Uh, We're J still JT Majizzle. I didn't see question at the beginning of the question. No. I'm a non-denominational Christian. What is your stance on Calvinism? Is it's irresistible grace, grace biblical? No. What do you think is the scriptural teaching on the Holy Spirit's power in changing one's heart? Convict the world of sin and unrighteousness. Well, that was easy. Yeah, there are actually several debates on this website um, between us and Calvinists. So you can go check that on the debates playlist and you'll really understand our perspective there. But I, I it, like it, Calvinism fine. I just think it's false. There you go. Like our Calvinist... Friends are our friends and yeah. brothers and all that. We're not I just, those kinds. I just don't agree with them. I think they're wrong. 
Um, Trinity Radio. I have a family. I've had a family that was addicted to drugs and died because of it. Mm. They wanted to quit when they were alive, but couldn't. Would this keep them from getting to heaven? No. Right. So the, that I, that by itself, no, that has nothing to do. Ask with. yourself this question: If you don't know who Billy Graham is, Billy Graham was probably preached the gospel to more people, if we're counting technology, than any other single human being in history. And many, many people came to Christ through Billy Graham. He's praised. News reporters tried to find blemishes on his, you know, kind of scandalous stuff about him. They never could find anything. And uh, in fact, uh, his longtime music minister was George Beverly Shea, but he called him Bev Beverly. He had a woman's middle name, Beverly. And um, and one day he was in a, a hotel and he picked up the phone and he used the house phone to call up to his room where George Beverly Shea, a man, was staying with him to save costs. And someone heard him say, I'll be up in a minute, Beverly. And uh, they thought, oh, we've got something here. Billy Graham is going into the room with some woman named Beverly. Well, it turned out to be George Beverly Shea, the guy who works with him. So uh, so this is a guy who's got a really great track record, really, you know, obviously a, a great life lived for the Lord. Now, how many cuss words would he have to say on his deathbed for him to get to go to hell? Hmm. Um, one, 10, 30, 30,000. How many times could a man who's lived that life, not that he earns his salvation, but a man like that, a good man, an upright man, how many cuss words would he have to say before he loses his salvation? See, the thing is, Jesus died for your sins and Jesus died for the sins of your family member who is addicted to drugs. Um, and if that person professed faith in Christ, we should start seeing a trajectory toward Christ likeness. doesn't mean that we should feel comfortable staying in our sins, but uh, drug addiction, depending on the drug, but, but most drugs that we think of that way as street drugs are very addictive like that. And as a result, that could be a long-term process trying to find a way to get out of that that will involve family and yeah, everything and else. Yeah, you may succumb to something before that happens. So, yeah. But the sins are paid for. Right. It wasn't like he could he could shoot up 15 more times before he loses his salvation. No, his sins were paid for. The question is, is he in Christ? Right. And uh, that's the thing. Did, yeah. he, did he willingly defect from Christianity? Did he stop believing? Um, if he still believed, if he was still trusting in Christ, if he truly was repentant, then just because there were sins that committed were committed in his life to the point of his death doesn't mean he's in hell. Yeah, this is this is the the complicated mess of Christianity where you balance evidence and fruit of of, of, of faithfulness to Jesus and besetting sins. Uh, that one is more obvious to people, but most people, I think. Um, will die with some sort of besetting fins, uh, sins that they were, were never to be done away with for good. Now, some people do conquer a lot of their sins, uh, but I know people that have had besetting sins until their deathbed. Uh, I don't believe that they, not, 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 not drugs, but other things too. Um, and they profess Christ, and they still had fruit, despite the fact that they had certain sins that they couldn't conquer in their life. And do I believe that that costs them uh, heaven? No, it doesn't, because where you are with Christ is what determines whether or not you, you're, you're going to be uh, with Christ. Super hyped to have you here, Andrew Henson. Yeah. And Piggle Pig Swillbucket says, how important are differences between denominations and how would you suggest finding a church to attend? So there are, you know, there are obvi obvious cults that are going to look like normal denominations, like your uh, Kingdom Hall and your uh, 
local Mormon ward or whatever. Those are those are obviously not just differences in denominations. Those are cult religions that piggyback off the truth of Christianity or and distort it. Um, then you have uh, like the difference, the the big, strong, large difference between Catholics and all Protestant uh, denominations. That being said, um, it's not that they're not our brothers. They're not like a cult in the way that. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult, at least not if you ask me. Um, and then uh, and then you have basically your evangelical mainline churches that are Protestant, if you have to nail it down, but not really, uh, don't really care much about that, you know, anymore. <laughs> uh, and uh, and that's your local Methodist, your Baptist, your Presbyterian, your um, whatever, Nazareth Church of the Nazarene, your big box non-denominational church like we go to. All those things there in the middle. And among those, all we're talking about are secondary, what we consider to be secondary doctrines, like the Calvinism issue or like various views on the charismatic gifts of the Spirit and uh, things like that, infant baptism, th these kind of things. Uh, no doubt there are people in our audience that think some of those things are major things that, that are not just secondary issues, but those people are wrong. These are secondary issues. And so you find a church... First of all, you consider all those people to be your brothers and sisters in Christ uh, th that really are. I mean, you don't like you don't like say, oh, he's Methodist. So maybe he's saved, but he's a weirdo. You know that? No, that's your brother. And if he's a weirdo, it's not just because he's Methodist. Um, yeah. Now, if he's Why are you picking on if he's if he's Presbyterian, it might be just because he's Presbyterian. But uh, anyway, you find a church and those are your friends and you can go to eat lunch with those people. You can hang out with them. You can visit their church. You can do all that. But you find a church that, that fits your secondary doctrines as best as you can. You're never going to find one that fits all of your theology perfectly, probably, but especially if you're an independent thinker, but, but you find one that does because you don't want to cause trouble in the church over a secondary doctrine. In other words, um, I could probably go to a Calvinist church and not cause any trouble. Jonathan Pritchett could not go there without destroying the oh, church. Oh, come on. I go to one now. Our pastor is a Calvinist or says he's a Calvinist. <laughs> no, but seriously, there are people, you know, that would that would not be able to go to an Armenian church yeah, or not church, be able to go our, to a— Yeah, our church is not a Calvinist church, but I think our pastor has said he's a Calvinist, right? Yeah, he has said, but I but, think he, yeah, I don't, he affirms libertarian freedom, right, too. Right, so, so we'll go figure— But, but uh, my take on this is simple. Uh, find a church that you like and that likes you and that you can live with the theological differences. If you're going to be the problem or they're going to have a problem with you, don't go there. But but like go out said, to eat lunch with them afterwards. Yeah, but other than that, it, they don't make that much of a difference. From Meow Meow Meow, thank you for that substantial super chat. I always appreciate that so much from you. And um, they say, thoughts on swimming for exercise and peace. Have all you want. When I was a Christian, swimming, especially in the ocean, always made me feel closer to God, except for that one shark experience. <laughs> the storm was fine, though. Okay, look, wow. was you need to be am a Christian again, so repent yep. and believe the gospel. Yep. Um, now, as a competitive year-round swimmer uh, in my uh, youth and teenage years— I didn't know that. I've told you that. I used to swim for Don't the Don't do that. Don't do it. Don't do to me what my wife does. Oh, I've, to, I've told you about this 10 minutes ago. <laughs> we are like an old married couple. People say it all the time. It's fine. Uh, I think swimming is great for exercise. Uh, I think it's one of the best kind of cardiovascular type exercises. Um, depending on how, you, how uh, serious you're about it, it may not always give you peace, um, especially if you're trying to best your own times when you're swimming 
uh, lap for laps and, and how many, you know, how fast can you do the hundred meter? How fast can you do the 200 meter? How fast can you do the IM? How fast can you? So follow uh, basic swimming yeah. instructions posted wherever you're swimming. And if they're right. not posted, follow common sense for safety reasons, yeah. but not for spiritual reasons. I used to love swimming in the ocean, but see, I never had a shark experience, but I had a jellyfish. Experience. In fact, I totally killed it. When you enter the ocean, you're part of the food chain period. Unless you're on a boat and you're fishing and jaws ain't around. Don't swim in the ocean. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. Went to the beach every weekend. We'll have skin cancer because of it. But, uh, and I love the ocean. And I know what you mean about being out there in the ocean and kind of feeling the oneness, kind of feeling the feeling the God a little bit. Feeling, you know, I know, I know what that's like. In fact, meow, meow, meow. Here is my prescription for you, my friend. Uh, find the nearest ocean. You're entering the food chain. Uh, actually, no, I'm not going to advise you to do this. Find a wave pool. Because you get bitten by a shark, it'll be my fault. Yeah, find a so, wave pool, less dangerous. No, don't go to a wave pool. You can't go to some... What, you're probably the kind of guy that goes to a church with a rock band for the praise worship music. Yeah. But... Um, but uh, I don't like it. <laughs> but, but listen... I'm kidding. You guys are great. At, I prescribe life. for you to go to the... Here's what I would do. I would go to the nearest large body of water that is... Well, no, go to the ocean. You probably have an ocean nearby or you wouldn't be asking. Go to the ocean. Uh, go out there. Become part of the food chain. Be, no, become, well, in the sense that you become one with. Shark bait. Well, you're, uh, just go out there and feel the presence of God. And, and, and ask the God that you do not believe in to confirm himself in some way uh, to, to you. And uh, I can't guarantee it, but I think if you will stop if you'll stop what we all do for a minute when you're out there, not that I, not that you've done anything to suggest to me that you would. This is the sort of thing some people would say I sound arrogant when I say. But but when you get out there, put, put the debate rhetoric aside. Don't try to debate yourself out of it. Don't ask yourself, Am I, is that really the presence of God? I mean, that you reflect on afterwards. But in the moment, you just be in the moment and, and talk to the Lord and see what happens. That's what I say. What do you say, Pritchett? Repent and believe the gospel. You don't even need yeah. to have a transcendental experience in the middle of the ocean to do it. That's true, but but why would you turn that down? When it's, it because it's better as a Christian anyway. <laughs> when it comes because to because you know you be still and know that God's there when you're doing that yes. instead of going out there waiting to see. Well, you be still if the ocean is still. When it comes to NDEs, some skeptics say that the accounts are too late to be reliable. How would you respond? Well. If the accounts are late, then I don't think we should count those. In my book, Death is a Doorway, I lay out four, um, four Such things a great that, book that will help you. Thank you. Uh, that will help you to, uh, to, to, you know, criteria for a good one that I'm going to consider an evidential NDE. And by the way, because I because you would be right to say I don't have access to any sort of heavenly sort of experiences that the person has. I'm not as interested in those. I mean, I might be interested in commonalities among them as a secondary topic. And I have to cover that in the book too. But in, um, in terms of just, is it evidential? I want to know, is this person, was this person able to talk about things going on in the room when they had no brainwave, no heart rate? What about, if, what about in another room of the hospital? Can they tell me about something or across town? Um, so, so, so one of those is it's gotta be evidential in some way we can check it out. The second one is that, um, has to be reported soon after the person is resuscitated. Now, soon is a bit subjective, but hopefully in, in within the same encounter where they've just been resuscitated and are first able to talk. Um, 
captured or written down by a medical professional. And it's best if that medical professional is a skeptic, is like an atheist. Uh, obviously, that's not important to whether it's true, but none of these things are important necessarily to whether it's true. Uh, it may have none of these things and yet still have been a real near-death experience for all I know. But for the ones that I consider evidential, they need to have those sort of features. And so I think if they are too late, I would agree that 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 they shouldn't be. Con- Again, it might they might be real, but I agree we want the ones as early as we can get them. How many books have you ri- written now? Nine, but that doesn't mean any of them are good. No, Death is a Doorway. (laughs) After Letters of Ignorantia came out, Death is a Doorway became your third best book. Letters of Ignorantia is your best book. It even beat Blinding Lights, which became your second best. Thank you. Which needs a second edition. Look at all that love. I appreciate it. Which needs a second edition so you don't ban it to the dustbin of history either. Vera says, something my friend said was a good response. When people say Jesus was just a prophet, a great man, and then you respond, and a liar. <laughs> That's right. Show them. Show them by telling them. You think he was a great man? A great man wouldn't go around lying to people, would he? A great man would tell the truth. Uh, Mr. Timothy, Tim, the, the, Mr. Timotheus Ward says, what's the most controversial theological stance each of you take? This isn't a trap, I promise. Just curious to hear what you guys would say. I can do mine first um, okay. to set the tone. Um, I, um, uh, well, one is that I'm old earth, which isn't controversial to most of you, but it's very controversial uh, within my family <laughs> in the circle of which I run. Uh, and then the second thing would probably be my, my openness and the, the um, uh, my openness to conditional immortality and maybe the um, advances they, I think they've made, uh, that I think are good, uh, for their position. Pritchett. Uh, my, uh, the most controversial stance I have is my refusal to take a stance on the hell issue. Um, that bothers people more than being a conditionalist. Apparently is you have to believe one or the other. No, you don't. You can just, yeah, those, those are interesting things. <clears throat> uh, and then probably next to that, I don't know. Um, I don't have any controversial views. Jose Martinez says, would you guys consider Dale Allison a Christian? Well, I know uh, Dale Allison's got a new book coming out um, on the resurrection that is supposed to be kind of mind-blowing that talks about supernatural stuff happening in other religions, which I think is super interesting. But I don't know his views on the essentials to know whether or not he would be orthodox or or what. So so give me an issue and what his position is on it, and I'll tell you what I think. It's kind of hard to pin down on... On on that, so. Um, really <laughs> I like that thing. Oh, here's a question. Hold on. What can, what view do you hold on the creation? So I lean more towards Walton's. You lean Walton plus, I guess. Or, or minus. Walton minus. Yeah. yeah. Walton minus a few things. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah, I don't buy the temple dedication stuff and all that. I I just think it's a polemic and. It's a literary form that, that well, is... Well, there you agree, but... The mean, liter- where I agree with you, him... You, he would argue that Genesis 1-1 is a material creation account, whereas I yeah, think Walton's... that's a big difference. I think, it, yeah. I think that it's so, talking about God making stuff. Right. So <laughs> I think that's kind of answer. My God makes stuff. I don't know about you guys. Okay, um, writer John Buck, thank you for that super nice. chat. It says, hey, boys. Hey. Hey, boys. 
Any advice for someone becoming convinced that the Catholic Church most closely resembles the one that Christ established? You take it. I, uh, if they're convinced that I don't care, but I'm an ecumenicalist, so I'm evil anyway and don't care if people become Catholics. So well, you see, better, you better take this one to, to settle the... Well, see, here's the thing. Anything They're I wrong get, about so much stuff, but whatever. Anything I give you on this is going to be a topic that if you've been looking at criticisms and, and the discussions around it, you'll be aware of all those. So, and, and I can't possibly go into the depth that, and I can't talk to you face to face about it. So, I mean, it's like it, it, anything I say is going to bring up this whole can of worms. So for example, um, I, I I'll throw this out there. I think um, I know that they consider the Bible to be an authority um, that is not the only authority and uh, in the, in, and, or the only, they would say of its kind, but but not of its perhaps caliber. I don't know. I've heard them say different things, but um, there's a lot of stuff they hold that then they point to verses in the Bible to back up that I think anyone, boy, that sounds really harsh, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, I think okay, anyone look, looking at the Bible. Tradition and scripture equal. Is that not weird to you? Perpetual virginity of Mary, purgatory, veneration. Perpetual virginity of Mary is a really interesting one. Yeah, I mean, do you want to accept all of those? I think they're weird and wrong, but if you, like I said, if that's where you want to go, I don't I don't care. Um, I don't say that they're outside the faith. I know others do, but I don't. I care, and I would just say, um, I would just say that when we're talking about adding to and I see that I know they're not adding to scripture in the sense of adding to scripture, although they do have books that we don't have. But um, but no, when you when you get into adding, um, adding trend. doctrines and stuff, especially ones that I get that they that they venerate Mary, not worship Mary. I get that they venerate the saints, don't worship the saints. I get that they think praying to a saint is is tantamount to asking a Christian here on earth to pray for you. I, I've heard, I know all those things. Uh, and yet I still find the, the, pro the problem being a lot of the beliefs that are poured on on top of Scripture. And, and we all have things poured on on top of Scripture, but that seem to be made almost central. Yeah. And uh, that that is very, um, I have to say the Mary stuff bothers me. Yeah, I'll just say this. Look, if you're going to be convinced of Catholicism, don't be a bad Catholic. Take all of it on board. Believe every bit of it. But if you're not going to do that, don't bother with it. That's why it's so much easier just being non-denominational than it is with any denomination, because you can just you can do what the Catholics get all hippie about, which I think is a misguided criticism. Is you can you can believe what's true rather than what they tell you. So whether it's the Catholic faith or any denomination or or whatever. But if you're going to be, don't be a don't be a a, a, a half-baked Catholic. Buy into all of it or don't become a Catholic because I'm sick of these Catholics who distance themselves. Not but Catholic, Catholicism but I don't like this, is not I don't like that. monolithic. No, but uh, you should adopt the entire catechism or or don't become don't bother. Jose Martinez has given us four dollars. Thanks, Jose Martinez. Nice. What's up, Jonathan and Braxton? Happy yeah. Friday. What's up, Jose? Michael Murdoch says, What are you drinking in that Wendy's cup? It's the remainder Vodka. of no, it's the remainder of Diet Coke that was sitting here. It's water. It's it's watered down Diet Coke. It's gross. Um, let's see. Uh, watered down Diet Coke is nasty. Here we have Derek Baylor says, if I give Brax this $10 and Brax gave Flowers $10 earlier, 
Does that mean in a way I gave flowers $10 or funded Brax's super chat and get, and can get partial or full credit? No, 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 no. Because when Braxton gives to Layton, that comes out of Braxton's personal money. When people donate to Trinity radio, that goes into Trinity radio to help make, uh, sets that fall apart and <laughs> but otherwise awesome you can't see what's in front of us but this is where the money is right here right in front of us is and, and not to mention it helps pay for things like our upcoming trips to uh was where we going wisconsin and we're going to uh sarasota sarasota and florida so we got some things finally after covid and you guys help make our our traveling possible and, and you know we, and eating old pizza in the airport right so um, no, that Braxton gives from Braxton. So maybe five of it. No, not even that because no, you're giving your $10 Derek and yeah. we appreciate you for all the tens of dollars you've given us. Right. And, uh, it's probably over a hundred now. <clears throat> and, um, and I give to Layton and I get, I get the credit for giving to Layton. Quit trying to take my credit. I'm not, I'm giving you credit. I'm talking to Derek Baylor. Yeah, no, because Derek, <laughs> if he, if he gave Trinity radio money instead of it, that's not even giving, that's like passing along. So, but Braxton's actual, a genuine giver. So it comes out of his personal money. Angel WVM says, some people I know believe that when we get to heaven, we'll forget everything about our time on earth. What's your view and why? <laughs> no, no evidence of that. I agree. And, um, and there's a, and I like the way William Lane Craig puts this when, because when you read in 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 First Corinthians fifteen towards the end about you know raising you know a corrupt perishable raised imperishable, there's still a continuity there, and so this idea that that we, we have a memory wipe just seems dumb. Plus, um, important to some theodicies, answers to the problem of evil is the notion that. And granted, there are babies that die and things like that, but they'll learn this by hearing the stories, no doubt, that the experiences that we've had on Earth in some way prepare humanity for uh, life in heaven. And also there there are great goods uh, that. So, for instance, with stories, for example, um, you don't want a story where there's no conflict. There has to be conflict for there to be a story. Every writer knows that. And uh, this conflict, if it's going to be a serious conflict at all, worth watching is going to be one where somebody's sinning, right? <laughs> so uh, why, but 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 yet through that, you get the stories of courage and hero, heroism and things like that, sacrifice. So I see no reason to believe that we won't uh, have, uh, that we won't have storytelling experiences. Yes. Yeah. how are you in any Films, way, can you imagine what films will be like in heaven? How are you going to, how would you even, if you have no memory whatsoever, how are you going to know that it's, that you're you in heaven. <laughs> also, let me tick so, off. Let me tick off everyone. You're somebody on earth. How are you going to be? How are you going to know that you're you? Uh, when when you? Well, I think on the physicalist view, you won't be. <laughs> right. Well, that's the Captain Kirk dies in every episode. He's beamed, kind of thing. Um. You know. Yeah. I, uh, another thing that I'll shoot down while we're on this question that will maybe upset some you, people. But you don't go to the other extreme and say you're not going to become omniscient either and know everything and have all of your theological questions answered upon entering the pearly gates. I was going to say um, that uh, when it says that God will remember your sins no more, God, you know, God forgives and God forgets. Um, God doesn't literally forget like he's as if he's not aware of the sins that I've committed. Um, he, he'll never hold those to my charge again. Right, he forgets them in that sense, because think what that would mean if God forgot your sins, God would be then have these blank spots 
in his memory when he thinks on or in his omniscience, it wouldn't be omniscience anymore. He would have these blank spots, but he'd be able to see all of the scenarios surrounding your sin. And so he would know what your sin was. So even if you have him forgiving and forgetting, he gets that information back indirectly. So I don't know how, 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 why people hold that view, but I know many people do. Okay. Um, let's move on here. Uh, in Romans 1, 26 through Yay, 27, meow, meow, same meow. sex behavior is ferafusis, atemia. But in first Corinthians, oh yeah. But in first Corinthians eleven fourteen, Paul says Fusis tell, tells us long hair or uh, men is atemia. Also, have you read Townsley's work on Romans and cultic sex rites? That sounds like a question for our New Testament man. I have Dr. not Jonathan read uh, Townsley's work. Um, okay. <sighs> Fuses, that's that word in nature. It's, it's a, it really, it's, 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 it's more custom, not necessarily overwhelmingly, especially in Romans. Okay. So he's talking about custom or practice, not talking about any sort of inherent part of someone's nature. Like, um, you know, Jews are, by nature circumcised well they're not ontologically circumcised from conception right i mean it's part of their custom and habit so um you know in first corinthians of course you're talking about the custom of corinth not necessarily just having men having long hair in general because paul himself likely didn't cut his hair until you know his vow was up that we read, read about in Acts. So then he shaved his head. So it's not necessarily the case that this is talking about something inherent. It's just talking about customs or habits. So I, I, I when it comes to that, Paul's speaking about the same sex kind of behavior that's custom or habit for for the Greek world in Romans one. It's kind of that channeling the wisdom of Solomon uh, chapters 13 through 15 I believe that he kind of condenses down into this big hairball of a of a, a polemic against uh, the Greeks and Gentiles and then he kind of in chapter two kind of offers a but you you do the same thing when he turns his attention towards the Jews so I don't I, I don't see this kind of like when, when we're talking about nature, it's talking about the customs and habits of, of, of whatever particular context is being discussed. So I don't, I don't, All right. I don't see, I, I, I don't, I don't see that as like, I don't know. I know some people, they want to uh, make the, you know, I'll tell you what in theology too, the word nature gets so many people into trouble, but you know, I just want to say that it's a fuzzy, slippery word that, that I've heard so much metaphysical nonsense over the word nature. Um, a E Numas, uh, thank you for that five dollars. Says, will Jesus come back in our lifetime, or is it going to be a couple thousand years, like IP said? Also, what the heck is the mark of the beast? So, first of all, I don't know when Jesus is coming back, and neither does IP. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, IP. No clue. Um, uh, on maybe, my definitely, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? I He'll now come when he's ready. If he if he can, I should live my life such that if he comes back today, or if he comes back 
10 years from now, it'll be the same that I'll be living for him. But um, he could come back today on my, the, my understanding. He could come back today, but um, unlike some dispensationalists, I don't think I have any guarantee that he's going to come back in my lifetime. Uh, sorry about yeah. that. Now my, now my dad would break down 25 reasons why I'm wrong and you can't, and there's good reason to believe he's coming back in our lifetime. That's not what your dad would say. Your dad, that there's good reason to believe that no, he'll come what, back in our lifetime. What? Well, what your dad says, because I pay attention when your dad preaches. You, I pay <laughs> just because I don't pay attention to what you doesn't mean I don't pay attention to anybody. <laughs> everything that needed to set the stage for Christ's return has occurred. Mm-hmm. That's what. So it could be. I agree any, with that. And 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 that's what I. Your dad preached a marathon sermon one night, three, three hours, hours on, on biblical prophecy. And I was expecting, when I, going into that, I was expecting 88 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 88. Because I, back <laughs> at the time, I did not know your dad as well as I do now. You know, I just knew dispensationalists speaking about prophecy. Well, didn't know anything else. I should have, I should have known better, but I thought, and, and by the way, you kind of, you, you kind of, amp me up for for that but anyway it was a phenomenal i think it's available on on online somewhere i don't know but phenomenal but, sermon for three hours and i learned so much about prophecy and just the whole spectrum of the bible yeah. uh far beyond just the dispensational dre- window dressing but just just learned so much but but all he said was is everything's been fulfilled that needs to be fulfilled the, for christ to, for return. to return and that's why it could but he didn't say would. He never said would. But said could happen in our lives. Yeah. And as for the mark of the beast, it's not the COVID vaccine. Yeah. Or the bus pass in Europe. Uh, it is in the book of Revelations with an S if you read Facebook. But the, but the book of Revelation that doesn't have the S that's in the Bible. I, I would say. I would say. I had to follow that one. Yeah. I would say, I, I think it's just talking about Roman coinage, really. And, and, you think it was talking about Caesar, what? And Roman coinage and the image of Caesar on it and all that. But. Well, and you can uh, go to, uh, I know where you can get this. I mean, but all this head and forehead stuff, I mean, that's just, you know, apocalyptic imagery. If you'll go to our church's website, um, I think it's, if you just Google One Life Network, Evansville, um, Steve Gregg spoke. It's the only place I know where Steve spoke on this issue in one sitting that's an hour long. And he gives his thing, and he there he gives his understanding of the mark of the beast. But I'm not going to try to explain it here. Um, okay, it's good. that is a, that was a good night too. I really enjoyed. How that. do you respond to the Epicurean paradox? It's funny because I was just listening to Alex Rosen Rosenberg, maybe debating William Lane Craig several years ago, and uh, and uh, Alex Rosenberg raises it. He's like, "This has already been solved. You've got a problem here because." Either So for those that don't know, the idea is when it comes to morals, when it comes to moral values and duties, that is something good because God decides this is going to be good and that's going to be bad. You're thinking this is going to be. Oh, oh, you're right. The Epicurean paradox. The Epic- oh, I was explaining the euthyphro this dilemma. Problem. The euthyphro dilemma. Yeah. Which is not what he asked about. Okay, then you answer. Get your Greeks straight. Then you answer the question. Okay. Uh, the question. It, Do y'all want to hear about the euthyphro dilemma? I'll talk about the euthyphro dilemma. I don't mind it talking. It boils down about. to if God is all loving, why evil? Right? I mean, that's what it comes down to. No. The, 
Oh yeah, the Epicurean paradox. Yeah, it just the Epicurean paradox is the problem of evil, as the guy should know who teaches the class at Trinity on the problem of evil at the masters and doctoral. We all level. have our moments. I, I did. That was I a real moment. Doug, I didn't that was give a real Doug moment. Wilson mess about getting. We all. I said that happens to all of us, and sure enough. Let me earn back some of my street cred here. Okay. Epicurus was a hedonist philosopher that lived before the time of Christ and died. On a in a bathtub. So you're giving them Wikipedia. I'm now. giving. I'm not looking at Wikipedia. There's no, no Wikipedia. I, no, I know. I'm saying you're gonna give the whole. Topic. I I'm gonna show. I'm gonna you're show gonna off about the whole Epicureanism. Britannica entry here. Yeah, he died in a bathtub, drunk on wine, uh, having kidney failure probably, and and wrote a letter to someone in that state on top of a mountain, and said, "This is the greatest day of my life because this is the day I die." So this is a guy who died a real rock star's death, way ahead of his time in terms of. A wasted life but um he's the one that we credit with the whole epicurean paradox which is the notion that um if god is all-knowing and all powerful and all loving then we shouldn't see evil basically because if he's uh if, if he's all powerful like he could stop it and he knows about it and he doesn't stop it then he's malevolent like he's evil but if but if he uh knows about it but can't stop it but would while well, he's not omnipotent. Well, what if he could stop it and he knows about it or whatever? What do I have left? All powerful. Yeah, he might be all powerful and all loving, but doesn't know everything. He's not omniscient. And that's why he didn't stop it. And so uh, that's the Epicurean paradox. How do I respond to it? Well, the Epicurean paradox falls closer in line with a logical argument from evil than an evidential one. You'll hear people talk about this even on YouTube videos. The logical argument from evil is the one that is is the easier to answer, but is making the stronger claim, because what the logical argument from evil is saying is it's saying th that uh, such a God does not exist, you know, and um, if there's if there's evil and he's described like that, that's what Epicurus is saying. That Therefore, this God does not exist is the notion that you're getting. Um, but all you have to do, it's the easiest to shoot down because all you have to do is provide one possible explanation for why God might allow that how he could be justified in, in light of this sort of thing. Um, and so one answer to that, I think that several of the answers people give are good. The character building answer that somehow you're a better person for experiencing um, suffering and stuff. That's good, but it's not enough on its own. I think that the heaven answer is good, that we're in some way being prepared for heaven, or at the very least, it, God will wipe every tear from the believer's eye in heaven. Um, that's good, but it's not the whole story. The reformed theodicy is good, but it's not the whole story. I think free will is the one that serves as the engine behind all of those things. And I think that the reason is because God wanted love. He wanted us to love uh, others and love him. Um, and so as a result, you get the highest expression of love if you're free. But even if you're God, if you give people free will, they're going to do some things that are good, but they're going to do some things that are evil. And so that's how I answer why God is just in light of this. And uh, so now we've gotten both the Euthyphro dilemma and the Epicurean period. Well, I missed it. Did you say that God was not loving? God was not all powerful? <laughs> yes, I did all that. So... Well, I mean, what did you decide? I missed it. Did you decide that God wasn't all loving or wasn't all powerful or doesn't exist? <laughs> I, I I took issue with the with the quadrilemma there. Yeah. All right. Uh, so now after that fiasco, <laughs> um, wait, wait, did I miss anything? No, that was great. Uh, uh, super chat. Hi. From Masco Mask of Shy says hi. Hi. Do you think Protestant fundamentalism does more damage than good? No. Considering very uh, skeptical atheists like Paulogia come from a similar background? No. In fact, I'm going to take up for the Protestant fundamentalists here. Because Me too. they're out there. 
They do more evangelism. They do more evangelism than evangelicals who are named after the Gileons. So no, I no, I don't. I, I I think that they're they're the easiest target to pick on, and a lot of them have that weird King James only thing going on, and that's weird. Okay, and a lot of a lot of, but at the same time, I I some some people that attend those fundamentalist churches are salt of the earth, nicest people you'll ever meet. They love Jesus. They want to see people come to know Jesus. They're the most charitable. So they get a lot of knocks. Everyone, especially from evangelicals, they say fundamentalists, they always bicker. No, I'm sorry. The 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 counterpoint series of books, there's like 30 of them where the evangelicals are arguing with each other all day long. Twitter and Facebook is evidence that evangelicals argue over secondary and tertiary issues all day long. Everything that they blame fundamentalists for, I lay at the feet of evangelicals. Whatever they're accusing fundamentalists of, that's evangelicalism. Y'all leave fundamentalists alone. They're weird, but let them let them be. There, I said it. Amen and amen. I agree. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, Trinity Radio question: How do you deal with the witnesses of the Book of Mormon who claim to have seen the plates, witnessed translations, etc., and were willing to die before they would deny it? Now, before I answer that question. I'll tell you what, what I love is there's this great moment in a debate between Blake Junta and uh, Matt Dillahunty. They had several debates. One was at the two of them were at the Bible and Beer Consortium. I'm not sure which one this is, but someone, you know, I think Dillahunty asked him, said, um, well, you say that these people saw Jesus, but but what about Mormonism? How do you know that's false? And Blake Junta was like, make a case for it. Lay it out. What's your evidence for Mormonism? And Matt's like, well, I don't, I'm, I don't, I'm not, I don't believe him. I'm not a Mormon. I'm not going to argue for Mormonism. So many times you can respond, even if you don't know the answer, just like, well, lay out a case for it. But um, in terms of this, if you look into this, and uh, th- by the way, there's a Mormon apologetics site that I can't remember the name of, where they try to answer our arguments. And I think their site does more to promote our cause than it does their cause. Uh, because they do a terrible, the terrible, they're, they're, you know, one of the, I am going to get your question. One of the questions, one of the challenges that have been made is if you have an infinite regression of gods such that there's no first God just goes back and back and it's like turtles all the way down, right? There isn't, there is no first God. Well, just like some of us know, you'd argue for the impossibility of an actual infinite series like that. Um, you argue that you can't have an actual infinite past number of gods with no first God. And the one of the answers, at least, that they give on the site is, well, that does seem like a problem, but every Christian's got this problem when it comes to uh, God existing an infinite amount of time before he created, which, of course, isn't what we believe. We believe God exists timelessly and created. But that's how bad the site is. Um, but anyway, uh, there's there's back and forth there. But on this issue... Yeah, because what they're saying is, I think, is, okay, one of the things about Christians say in the apologetic defense of the resurrection is, you've heard this a million times from apologists, people won't die for what they know to be a lie, but they will die for what they believe to be the truth. And so what he's asking is, given that... No, I know. I know. I'm ramping up. That was all ramp up. That was just a bunch of ramp up. So, but thank you for clarifying the state of affairs from his asking the question to mine. Now answering specifically so most of those people left the mormon church before they died and uh or were kicked out or and some of them denied directly uh this if i remember correctly so that's how i answer that you don't have you don't have evidence of that for the apostles and early disciples yeah so there you go 
Um, okay, Mr. Phil Fox. Mr. Phil, Mr. Phil Fox. Fox. Question, how do I become as cool as the two of you? Oh, and Chris Dex. Oh, by the way, you're like cooler than us, Mr. Phil Fox. Everyone go subscribe to Mr. Phil Fox's channel. Plus, you can see me on there twice, two episodes uh, on there. And I think it's Mr. Phil Fox's channel that hosted the, uh, the follow-up that I mentioned earlier with Matthew Jackson and uh, Chris Bryan Samuel, two very good friends of mine. Uh, they have two episodes in which they did a post-debate analysis of MJ Jackson's debate. MJ Jackson is also a Trinity student, and his first debate totally wiped the floor with his opponent, who was a nice guy. I don't want to say he's not, but I, mean, I was I was beaming with pride watching that debate. I was like, this guy's going to be tearing people to pieces in in the in the future. Uh, What's so, hell? And who goes? But into you're the already fire. there. You're already there, uh, Mr. Phil Fox. If not way cooler than us. Bridget. Huh? Javon Brown wants to know what is hell and who goes in the lake of fire? What exactly is hell? What exactly is hell? And, um, well, okay. The lake of fire is the place of final judgment, um, that people most, most associate with what Jesus means by Gehenna, uh, in the gospels. The lake of fire is that, uh, corresponding, term that John uses in, in Revelation. So um, that's, that's the final state of the wicked. That's where the wicked go, the beast, the false prophets, uh, the devil and his angels. As they were prepared for that. That place was prepared for them. And, of course, death and Hades all tossed in there as well. So that's the who goes there, death, kind of the personification of a cosmic evil that John does and Paul does in Romans 5. Um, so that's that's where they go. What is it? Well, that's a matter of debate. Some people think it's... Uh, in fact, go check out, do a YouTube search for Jonathan Pritchett, Rethinking Hell, because I go through all of the different views that people have rethought hell is from a literal fiery ocean uh, to people sitting around depressed all the time, uh, you know, according to some views. Yeah, of, just Google Jonathan Pritchett yeah. rethinking so, hell. So, some people think it's like what eternal conscious sadness and depression, eternal conscious torture, uh, the NT right uh, dehumanization. I call it the eternal conscious golluming, uh, where you eternally become subhuman. Like Gollum. Uh, then there's the uh, conditionalist view uh, of annihilation. So what is it? Well, that's a matter of debate. And uh, I, I don't go with the literal fire. Is there proof uh, for Judaism and books and books of the Bible existing prior to the Babylonian exile? When it comes to things like the archaeological finds at Jericho, I wonder if the Bible is revisionist history. Are you leaving it for me to answer that? I just, I've got it on the Pritchett cam. You seem like you're <laughs> okay. on a roll. Is there proof for Judaism and books of the Bible existing prior to the Babylonian exile? Uh, yes. In fact, a, a, a good book uh, on all of that is on the reliability of the Old Testament. It's a classic work from K.A. Kitchen. And he has a complimentary book to that called Ancient Orient and Old Testament. And then, of course, uh, there's, where's that archaeology? We have it in here. Um, the archaeological evidence uh, of the Bible and has a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. Now, as far as Jericho goes, and and, and go watch IP's case for the uh, Exodus. What is that premiering? At 5 o'clock today. 5 o'clock today. Central we'll give, Standard give you, Time. Give you evidence of that. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of 
a lot of evidence. Uh, a lot of the JEDP stuff about the composition of the Old Testament uh, being, you know, in the Babylonian captivity, uh, Braxton shoots that down rather well in, in several uh, of his Genesis commentary uh, series. And I know you, you tackle that in the class, so you may want to say more about that. But but as far as its final form, yeah, that's possible. Uh, but there's evidence that it existed prior to that. Uh, Jericho, that's an interesting case. Okay, so the evidence for the whole Jericho affair, I, I admit, is scarce at, in accordance with contemporary scholarship. But what we've found time and time again, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, is wait. Because we don't know what they've discovered, what they haven't discovered. And I've, I've learned to rethink people's time frames for when they think events happened. And so I'm always saying wait. And typically when you wait for further evidence, the Bible ends up being confirmed. So because I've seen that be the pattern in the history of the archaeological evidence to support both the Old Testament and the New Testament, I'm fine with acknowledging that, yeah, the archaeological evidence right now for the siege of Jericho is not uh, great. But uh, that doesn't mean uh, new discoveries won't occur and, you know, shifts in thinking of time frames of when that might occur. Um, I'm fine with waiting, uh, but I always go with the Bible until I'm given a reason not to. And just because one particular story doesn't have a, a whole lot of evidence now doesn't mean it won't later. Because we've seen that pattern of what they didn't think they had evidence for, they end up finding evidence for, and it confirms the Bible over and over again. So whatever we don't have solid evidence for, I'm willing to wait it out. What about and, you? What? <clears throat> yeah, that's true. I'm, I agree with everything you said. You weren't I, listening. I did listen. I did listen. Would you like me to recount it no. back for you? But I, I think uh, another thing that needs to be... I take, believe you because you admit when you're not listening. So. That's true. <laughs> um, but another thing that you didn't mention that bears mentioning here is, well, this is also to preclude ahead of time the importance as, if nothing else, historical documents of the books that comprise our Old and New Testament. I mean, you know, it's like whenever we talk about, well, evidence for Jesus and evidence for the resurrection and evidence for the early church and the apostles and all these kind of things. People from the jump want to, and when I say people, I mean people on YouTube more than anywhere else, want to brush aside anything in the Bible because, well, that's just made up Christian propaganda material. Hold on. Anyone working on a PhD and writing a dissertation knows that you want to get um, to the uh, the primary documents, if you can. Well, the primary documents on a lot of these things are the books of the Bible, even if you don't believe any of it's true. Yeah. So, I, so when we talk about there not being any evidence for these things, well, we know we have some evidence for these things. You know, and that's a point I want to make specifically about Jericho. What I said was the evidence is not great. I didn't say that, I didn't take the, the position that because this issue is debated in biblical archaeology about Jericho, uh, and if you want the 10-minute read version of this, just get the five views on inerrancy because that's one of the questions that came up about this. There's a difference between disputes about what little evidence that we have for it versus taking the hyperbolic stance, there's no evidence for Jericho whatsoever. That's false. So I'm not saying that. All I'm copying to, because I think we need to admit when we don't have as much evidence as we like, is that the evidence for that is not great. But I'm saying I'm willing to wait that out 
and, and then I'll make a determination based on on uh, whatever they come up with. But I have no reason to doubt the biblical account until I'm given a reason to. And the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So I'm going to wait because the history of these kinds of discussions is the Bible's wrong, wrong, wrong. Oh, wait, it's right. The Bible's wrong, wrong. Oh, wait, it's right. Wrong, wrong. Oh, wait, we got more. Yeah, that's right. true. So, so I'm not, you know, so I can admit, they, not that there's no evidence, that claim is stupid, but if you're saying the evidence is not great for it, I, I admit that we don't have what we'd like for it, but I'm willing to wait on that. Andrew Henson says, so who, So would you say perhaps that there is then a major difference between you and I evaluating whether we believe someone's claim to repentance and God's knowledge of their repentance? Well, as far as whether you and I would agree or disagree on that, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what your view is. God but knows infallibly. My view is, in terms of in in terms of evaluating whether we believe someone's claim to repentance, um, obviously we can look at fruit in their lives. As Pritchett followed up my comments a while ago, because I was listening to him, he said this. He said you can look at their lives and look at the fruit, and you, but you can't make assumptions but, because you also see bad things. Right. right. So. Um, but so yeah, I, I I don't I don't know your view to know whether we disagree about that. I can't know for sure ultimately whether someone has truly repented or not. So most of the time, if someone tells me they're a Christian, I take them up at a word if they have the gospel right. Um, as far as God's knowledge of their repentance, yeah, God knows, as Pritchett says, that God knows God that knows He knows in a way I don't know. So that's right? a pretty major difference. So I'm not sure. Maybe there's something Somebody specific asked you're about asking. Somebody grounding objection and Molinism with the with a super chat, and I think we missed it. I don't know. Whoever that is, I'm sorry. Um, How do you respond to the grounding objection? It was a super chat. I think. Well, since you brought it up, answer. Huh? Answer. I, I don't think it's necessary because when you're talking about truth makers, you can you can even make the statement, this sentence has no truth maker, and it kind of shows the, the problem with the question. But as far as the grounding objection, you know, what must be the metaphysical circumstances or ontological circumstances for which God to know something? I don't know. No one else does either. I don't know how God exists by the necessity of his nature. I don't know the mechanics of that. I just know that he exists by the necessity of his own nature. And nobody that I know can tell me how God exists by the necessity of his own How does that work? What are the mechanics of that? Nobody knows. And so when I hear um, theists bring up the grounding objection, they're assuming that it's like how, how does omniscience work? I don't know how omniscience works because I'm not omniscient. So I don't know how God can know everything uh, any more than I can know how God exists by the necessity of his own nature. I just know that he does. So the grounding objection doesn't even bother me, but it bothers Braxton because he's a Molinist. So you can meow, meow, meow says, love you guys, Jonathan. My best time in fifth is 50 meters freestyle in 50 meter Freestyle was 26 seconds. That's pretty good. What about you? I was terrible at backstroke. Dreadful Satan-like stroke. Butterfly is like baptism by fire. Well, that uh, that freestyle time will be, I mean, when you're out there in the ocean experiencing the presence of God, once again, you'll need to have those things. So, yeah. 11 seconds for 25. 13 seconds on the return. 24 seconds. My best time. So, uh... My biggest, comp the biggest thing that I had is I was one of the rare cases where I could do a backstroke flip turn better than I could a freestyle flip turn. And I think I could have shaved off a whole second if I was better at the flip turn on a 50 meter sprint. 
Um, New first, Testament theologist says, when can we expect a uh, video takedown of James White's perpetual commentary about God's decree, or is it worthwhile to debate him? Well, if you can convince Jonathan to debate him, I'm not going to talk about that issue. I'm yeah. more interested in apologetics. But I love theology, and John, that's more in Jonathan's thing. So I, I, I don't. That's Leighton Flowers' thing, really, is to debate Calvinists all day. We've... We at Trinity Radio uh, have moved away from debating Calvinism 24-7. We still talk about it on occasion, but but we've got one professor here that's that's his main online uh, presence, and so we're just not uh, debating Calvinists anymore. We've both had debates in the past against Calvinism, but we've kind of moved away from that. Uh, I don't I don't care. Get get uh, Leighton Flowers to go debate him. Sarah Fufer, I'm sorry, I'm probably saying it wrong. Hello, thank you for all the work you do. Well, thank you for your super chat, Sarah. Do you have any tips for Christians on how to interact with atheists in the comments section? Um, what You know, I actually, it's funny you asked this because I actually thought at some point it might actually be helpful. Um, so obviously, if you're dealing with a person who's being nice, being reasonable, not being insulting, not making big, extravagant, crazy claims about there's no evidence for God or that you're stupid or, you know, things like that. You'd be nice and have a nice conversation and, and represent the kingdom. And that's what you, you should represent the kingdom in any circumstance, but in the way that seems most obvious there. Um, if you see people that are just spewing rhetoric, you know, Oh, the Columbus been debunked. Oh, this or that. And there's no content behind it. Then I actually came up with, I thought it would be good if every time the Christian would, anytime there's just rhetoric and no, no uh, evidence, just claims, I just say, put, just, just put in all caps rhetoric and that's all just leave it there. Or, and we need to come up with other tags when they do things like this. Um, Let me give a little bit of practical advice about online engagement, whether it's with atheists or with Christians, but be nice, be nice in general. No. Yeah. Be nice. Um, but some people want to argue for the sake of arguing and they've got no life. And unless you want to have a life, do not let people waste enormous amounts of your time because you think you have to have a clap back on everything. Okay. Because they said something and you need to say something in response after five back and forth replying to nobody's reading it, but you and the person you're talking to. And no one in the world cares, and you're not making a difference. They're just wanting to monopolize. I don't know, man. Time. Some of those threads get to be 200 posts right. deep. Right, and I'm not. I, when I see when I see click to view more, click to view next 700 and comment. I'm not clicking. I don't care, and no one else does either. And but, the person you're talking to is just trying to monopolize your time and score points in front of no audience whatsoever. Don't let people online, whether Christian or atheist, monopolize your time. If you're not having a decent conversation after the first round of back and forth, leave it alone. No one cares. No one also, thinks less of you're... you because they made a comment and you never reply. Who cares? It's just the internet. People get too... I've seen people just go on and on and on with people they don't know on the internet. Have conversations with real people if you want to have that discussion because if they're being rude to your face, you know you're not going to stand there and just keep talking to them. So why do it online? Don't waste your life arguing with people in comment. Be nice. If the conversation is going somewhere productive, continue if you have time. If you don't have time or it's not going anywhere productive, just get out at the beginning and don't waste your life on the internet. And make sure that make sure at the very least that you that you express 
that you hope that they'll become a Christian. That present the gospel if yeah. you can. Uh, the, most of them listening to me right now will say, "We don't need to hear your gospel anymore. We've heard your gospel before." Well, that's interesting because every time I listen to an atheist telling what the gospel is, it ends up being something. Not any atheist, but atheists that I have in mind it ends up being something like God put a tree in there to trick Adam and Eve, and then there was a bunch of made up. Uh, Middle Earth type stuff, and then God sacrificed Himself to Himself to save us from Himself. Um, and then, if if you get through, it's a weighing of did you do good enough for bad enough? You get seventy two virgins or something. I mean, every I mean it, it, that's obviously an exaggeration, but works based salvation is often part of what they understand. So uh, when people say, "Well, I was an evangelical for you know the first eighteen years of my life," yeah, well, I've been an evangelical for forty years of my life. Jonathan's been an evangelical for forty three years. Add nine months for both of us because. Baptist born, Baptist bred. When I die, I'll be Baptist dead. I'm actually not a Baptist now, I but I was evangelical. Born, I completely missed my birthday, and I don't really, I mean, not much of an evangelical, but uh, I'm 44 years old. I had a birthday, and you know what Braxton got me? Tell him what you got me for my birthday. Nothing. Right. Tell him what I got you for your birthday. Actually, I was just trying to think whether you did. He got me a cane. And I'm the getting, Santa hat. The Santa hat's <laughs> yeah, the Santa Now, what did I get you the year before that on your birthday? Now, the year before that, you got me a sword. Yep. What did I get you the year before that? The best gift that you, you're still trying to chase that dragon and get, and get a better gift than you got that first year. The the trilogy of C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Yeah, no, no, this sword's pretty awesome, though. It's great. but And I it's love right it. There. I love that I have it, but it's I not. I like the cane, too. It's, I like all that. It was all good. Those are wonderful gifts. But if you're asking me to assess, my favorite gift was the C.S. Yeah. Lewis Space Trilogy. Or the, um, uh, well, I forget what One year you got me the Acts commentary uh, from Daryl Bachman. That was great. Um, I liked that. Um, I think you bought it at a used bookstore for like. Do you have any advice for discipline? For for uh, I think you mean discipling a friend with a mental disability such that his mind is perpetually young, leading to short-sightedness, among other things. Just patience and love with them. I, I don't know really enough from what you've told me. You say perpetually young. I mean, I don't know if, if we're talking about the sort of comprehension level of um, what particular age or, or anything, but I think just obviously Our a lot of patience, love, care, trying to, I mean, I, I'm not a children's minister. My wife could probably advise better. She she went to school for early childhood development with yeah i mean Down mental syndrome. disability there's all kinds of that you know uh so it depends on what the uh, the disability would be how i'd answer that question yeah so we we're not really the best like my son is on, actually you're a good person to well, ask I mean, about my son is on the spectrum so i have no problem with him learning about christianity because he deep dives and uh, he's on eschatology now <laughs> great because i'm have zero interest in it but i mean certain disabilities uh when they find a subject matter they latch onto it and never shut up about it uh, but other disabilities may manifest themselves differently so I, I don't know how to answer that for for given the i don't know what perpetually young means um so i i don't know uh, but i agree with you that that there needs to be love patience and um an expectation that's reasonable to their level of understanding yeah. Um, and don't think that they, they have to exhibit, uh, you know, what you think, you know, don't have any expectations for, for, for exhibiting certain discipleship, you know, goals, spiritual disciplines goals. and goals that, that 
I mean, heck, most people who are uh, not having mental disabilities aren't great disciples in churches all over the place either. So, I mean, just, just you know. Yeah, so another thing I wanted to say back on the issue of talking to skeptics in the chat um, is, remember this, often you're writing a lot because you imagine that the person on the other end who's discussing with you you imagine that they are some kind of a scholar or at least really, really well read on this issue or are a businessman or woman who look pretty cool. And you can imagine them sitting there with their Chardonnay responding to you. Actually, our demographic, our strongest demographic is between 18 and 35 year old males who are into video games. So uh, the other person talking to you may well be a 13 year old. Uh, Not that 13 year olds can't know anything. My 13-year-old knows a lot, um, but my 13-year-olds shouldn't be the standard. Could standard be way too high? But anyway, uh, all right, let's uh, let's let's keep trucking now. Derek Baylor, thank Again, you so much you. for that. Thoughts on discernment ministries? Discernment is important, but I'm not comfortable with using an entire ministry for calling out others. He, let me give my rant on this one first, then you can go. I feel that way. Um, and here's the, I don't think there's anything wrong with it in principle because for example, there's a well-known discernment ministry, um, that called out Ravi Zacharias years ago. Uh, there's a, that same discernment ministry called out, let's say that guy who, uh, was a real, like, looked like a boy band guy and he was charging people to come to his revivals and stuff. Uh, that guy who slept around with a bunch of people, promised him that he'd marry him, slept with him and kicked him to the car, whatever. Right, oh, the beat poetry guy. I can't remember his name. Yeah, I can't remember. Don't his name, name him now because if I've gotten one of the details wrong, I don't want to be responsible for that. But all the details are there. So that so he so they've called out some people that were legitimate dangers. But what I think can happen with discernment ministries is, especially in the setting I think you're describing, which is almost like an online news outlet of sorts. The problem is they have to have content all the time. Feed the beast. And when you when there isn't content, you know what you start to do? You start witch hunting people who are perfectly fine. And you find little things to nitpick, and then you make those bigger things because they have to be newsworthy. And before you know it, you're just causing division in the church. So I think it can be done right. And slandering. I think even the worst of them that I've seen have done some good with it. But I think it turns into an engine for gossip at times. Uh, not that that can't be countered for it, it could. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty much, there's some, now some discernment ministries, when they pop their head up, they don't do it often. They're not trying to feed a news 24 hour news cycle. And they still have the respect that they had 10, 15 years ago. Uh, a lot of discernment ministries have come and you don't even hear much about them anymore. And, and I, I think that, I think they've done, Overall, if I was to take it as one category, the good sites and the bad, there's been more bad than good. Uh, on hey, average. before you go, IP just showed up or he's been here for a while and I haven't gotten to him yet, but he's about to leave. But um, thank you for the super chat, IP. And we've told everyone to watch your documentary. So we're, we're pushing that for you. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah, the next documentary that IP does, he needs to have you be the because you're gonna you need to become the the uh, Christian documentary presenter guy on camera because you're. I'm pleased you, with how I did. You, yeah, I think you did a great. Thank job you. With I my appreciate words it. coming out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's a dream for you. Okay, what is your view on eschatology? So I'll shock Jonathan here. Did you find one? 
Kind of. Really? So um, I think that the uh, partial preterists, amillennialists have, I became really impressed with that case. Um, I've classically taught a futurist view, pre-trib, pre-millennial, that sort of thing. What Now, there's a way to synthesize those two um, that I just didn't find in any way attractive. I mean, I, I found it attractive in terms of its utility, but not in terms of whether I thought it was actually true or not. And that is the notion that partial preterist amillennialism is true, but those things happening in 70 AD and, and, and those sorts of things were uh, part of a prophecy of double reference. Prophecy of double reference is double like fulfillment. when you see something like, um, uh, you know, the virgin birth being talked about in Isaiah. And then all of a sudden it's also, but it's also a pro it's a prop. It had a fulfillment thereafter, but it also had a future fulfillment. Like a grand, Christ. a grander, fulfillment. a grander fulfillment. Double fulfillment has a, has a, has a type for the short term fulfillment. And then the, the, uh, the main attraction, the bigger, grander fulfillment. So I was talking to another person about that recently and um, saying that I found that to be contrived and they gave me some reasons not to think so. So currently I am, taking the position of a partial preterist amillennial futurist. <laughs> Jonathan? Uh, I don't care. I lean uh, the amillennialist uh, partial preterist view without his... Uh, Add-on? Without his, I want dispensationalism <laughs> so that my dad won't hate me. No, that was my criticism of no, it. No, I know. That was my criticism of it. No, but that's... But I think part of it is you can you can have your cake and eat it too with it could be your dispensational I can, I, past. I don't think uh, so, but it could be with your dispensational heritage. Yeah. Oh well, no. I mean, why do you hate heritage so much? I don't. I'm saying that's a good reason to believe it. I'm not. You're always bashing. That's heritage. fine to go with it. That's where your heart wants it to be true. Even I don't. I don't want to go where my heart wants to go. My heart would have gotten me in trouble. I'm being facetious. I'm just saying. Uh, I I lean, I'll, but I'm I'm open. I had a dispensationalist uh, on my uh, Trinity Radio Extra thing. Uh, I'm open. I'm open to all eschatology, but I I lean, and most of the readings I find to be consistent with my understanding of how to read the Bible is the partial preterist all millennialist. What's your current best guess at the age of the Earth? For me, whatever science says, I think four point seven point, billion years is old. Is that what they for, say? I, 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 I thought that's. The, I used to hear that. Now I'm hearing three point five or something. I, I, whatever science says, if it says four point seven, four point seven, and just the universe is what 13, thirteen point something. something yeah. yeah. Uh, what's my current best? Uh, I don't know. It's older than I am. It has to be right. That's that's my <laughs> unless best you're guess. In a, unless you're in a matrix. That's my sort. best guess. That's not my only guess, but that's my, my best guess is that it's older than me. Yes. Uh, besides flowers, is there anyone else you recommend and support in regards to teaching soteriology? Steve Gregg and Jonathan Pritchett and me. I, yeah, it's teaching soteriology. Yeah, debating soteriology. I like to listen to Chris de, uh, date defend Calvinism. Uh, I think he does it more ably than actually a lot of uh, the people that are the usual suspects out there running around defending Calvinism. Um, I just don't hate Calvinism enough to to go argue against it anymore. I did that one debate, and of course I, those people were off the wall. Uh, but I, you know, we've like I said earlier, we've changed directions. Uh, I'm happy to talk about it. You want to hear me talk about it for close to three hours? Go to Mr. Phil Fox's channel. I talked about it recently for two episodes over the course of about. When is JP ago. going to make a make me a mod on the Theology Geeks Fitness Group? Who is is that? 
JMD Why apologetics. Why do you need to be a mod in my group? I don't. That group's not active enough to need a much mod. Derek says IP is post post millennial, so he sees it far off because the kingdom hasn't spread enough. Yeah, so he's got it all. So what he's telling me is he's got it all mapped out the societal change over the next 2000 years that in the 2000 years time, we're going to be there. Is that, is he following trends? Is he looking at trends? Cause I don't think those are working for him right now. I guess globally they would be globally because of China partly. I don't know. A lot of I don't believe he knows the future 2000 it, years. It's, out. it's it's weird because not a lot of people outside of the Presbyterian camp and IP is not a Presbyterian as far as I know, because uh, he's certainly not Calvinist. So, um, I, I didn't think a lot anyone outside of Presbyterians were post mills. So that that just makes me more curious. I hope he does an es- eschatology episode or video or something. I'm curious about that. Rodney Tucker, Doctor Rodney Tucker. Greetings, Braxton and Prime. Great hey, hey. shirt, Prime. Let's just go back to the Pritchett cam. Ah, so it's not a see. it's not a it's not a Star Trek shirt. So he's happy. I'm gonna have right. to wear a Star Trek shirt. I got this for five dollars at Five Below. Um, to put in my own stocking at Christmas a year ago. Because I needed Rodney is calling me out. Question is for Braxton. What is the ETA on the Take On Me cover? May. I bought your Chronicles books in order to hear it. Can I request Honey to be played again as an intro? Yes, we'll play Honey next time. We are going to record uh, that on our road trip to, to Wisconsin because we have a long stretch in the car, so we will, we will do that. I don't think I have Honey here. I'll put honey on the next episode. Thank you. That's an unbelievable super chat. Yes. Unbelievable. We just put yesterday our old desk that we used for the podcast into storage, and it still has Rodney Tucker's signature on it. Mm-hmm. Sure does. Sarah Fufer's back. Um, Sarah, I, I'm not to your super chat yet, but so I can't put it on the screen, but I see what it says. And you say, I hope you do another Q&A soon. Every Friday that we do a show, which is almost every Friday, we do a Q&A. We'll often have a topic, but that topic is just something to get people to pay attention to us while we do Q&A. Yeah. So, um, I mean, well, it's usually the first 30, 40 minutes, and then we do another 20 minutes of Q&A. But anytime we do a Q&A, I mean, it's still coming on an hour and 40 minutes. Every time we say we're going to do a Q&A, these things go on forever because people ask more questions. We take Q&A at the end of every other episode and after about five questions we're out thank you brad from carolina mm-hmm. greetings and god bless these true evangelists i like nice. evangelists. thank you brad all right thank you so much brad and i, I hope that. you are a true evangelist he sent us a picture wearing a, a classic trinity radio black shirt with the logo i love yellow. that shirt i love the old logo i mean i like the blue and gray it's still the same logo it's just different color. yeah i know but i like the. oh did you you just passed up something Oh my gosh, Jason Miles again! Shoot, man, if he keeps this up, we can just uh, get us an apartment downtown or something. I mean, this is nice. Thank you, unbelievable, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Jason, too generous. What are you doing? How could you do that for us? Thank you. Oh man, I'm blown away. Yeah. What is your view on eschatology? Already answered that. Hmm. What what did you say? Wait, there was more about the rapture stuff, right? Is there going to be a rapture? Yes, every Christian believes there's going to be a rapture. How do you understand rapture? Right. That's the thing. Every Christian who's Orthodox must believe in a rapture. The thing is, 
You must they don't all in call the it Latin a rapture. Term. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, everybody, not in Greek, but yeah. everybody believes that. You know, okay. What you mean is everyone believes in the parousia. So the pre-trib, pre-millennial futurist view says that at the end of chapter four, I think it is, is the last time you see the church mentioned on earth until towards the end of the book of Revelation. Um, uh, and so, uh, and then they go back to, is it second Thessalonians or first Thessalonians? First Thessalonians. Yeah. First Thessalonians 513 ish through the end of the chapter is where it talks about, um, um, uh, the Lord coming and, and those, the, uh, the buried and dead will rise first. And then those which are alive and remain will be caught up with him. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Yes. What Therefore that, comfort one another with these words. Yeah. And some people say this is going to be at the beginning of some sort for all of the historic pre-mill slash dispensational people. They think that there's going to be an actual disappearance of all Christians. Um, that kind of rapture, I don't believe in whether it's pre mid or post tribulation uh, that is not what i believe in at all what i believe is that paul is using this imagery of where the people of a city would go out to greet a conquering hero like a general or a king or something and escort them back into the city so i believe in the short trip theory that paul takes that kind of imagery and makes it uh, vertical instead of horizontal and so it's kind of all the christian and then the caught up in the clouds kind of imagery is is kind of, a, of a, just a, a welcoming of, of Christ and escorting uh, Christ uh, into his kingdom at the second coming. That's what I believe is going on there. I don't believe in all of this left-behind business. Derek Baylor, Pritchett isn't a fan of pro-Calvi or Arminian books, but I have about 10 lined up to read from the different views, but you say it's a waste of time, and the reason this person is asking this... If you bought them, no, read them because you spent money I was money trying on to it, set but, up for people by saying... Pritchett doesn't believe you should believe you should read books that are written by the person advocating for their own position. You should. What do you think you should read? People trashing somebody else's position. No, I'm saying if you want to get your head around the the cal, the soteriology debates, the read what these, they're actually books, saying. Well, no, yeah, I mean, in like systematic theologies and or, stuff, or in co biblical commentaries, really, we go first on the relevant passages. Critical commentaries. Most, not all, not saying all, most of these why I am a Calvinist or why I'm not a Calvinist or why I'm an Arminian or why Arminian is most of these books aren't that helpful. They're mostly saying the same thing. You'll find at eight out of those 10 things are going to say the same thing and they're not going to be helpful at all. Just go find a Calvinist systematic theologian and a non-reformed systematic theologian, read their theology books on the relevant sections of soteriology and but go to the relevant passages and go to the critical commentaries by either Calvinist or that's where you find the stuff that's really going to matter in these debates. It's going to come down to exegesis. Uh, so if you have 10 lined up that you paid for, yeah, you should read the books that you buy instead of ending up like people like me and Braxton having spent money on books we never read. That's all you had to say. Yes, read them. But if you hadn't <laughs> spent any money, wipe them off and, and, and go through interlibrary loan and start uh, getting for free Various commentaries it may take a week or two for your library to, to get it to you, but go start reading the best commentaries on the relevant passages of Scripture and read the best systematicians on. Thank on you for your super stuff. chat. Yeah. Inspiring philosophy says: Question: If corn oil is made from corn and vegetable oil is made from vegetables, what is baby oil made from? <laughs> uh, and we got another one from him. 
we got several more. Why is an alarm clock going off when it actually turns on? If money doesn't grow on trees, then why do banks have branches? He's That's a real a jokester. Question, yeah. Why does it take 50 minutes to cook minute rice? Why isn't there a mouse-flavored <laughs> cat that, food? That is actually something I've... So I went and got a rice cooker because I, I got sick of this instant rice stuff that wasn't as instant. So if I'm going to wait on it, I just make it easy on myself with the rice cooker. <laughs> what do you call male ballerinas? Why is an 11 pronounced 21? I'll let you all read those in the chat if you want to, the rest of those. Those are great. Um, he, he just kept going. Here we go. Are you aware of the rollback problem against libertarian free will? And if so, how would you respond to it? Well, there's two way, two possibilities I would give. One is a defeater for the rollback problem, and one is what I actually believe. So for those that don't know, the rollback problem is the idea that, um, okay, it, if you have libertarian freedom, which means you have the freedom to do, uh, to have done other perhaps than whatever you ended up doing, or you're, you have source libertarianism where nothing external to you determines your actions, then some people have said, well, then that means that if we rolled back the tape, so to speak, and you lived this day again, we would imagine you making some other decisions than the ones that you made. But of course, that doesn't seem right because whatever you did, you did for the reasons that you did, and you would have those same reasons again to do those things again, which means that the rollback problem ultimately, to me, collapses down into the... Um, um, I forget the name for it, but the, the the idea that your choices are either determined, in which case they're determined, or they're random, in which case they're not under your control. And neither one of those gives you libertarian freedom. Uh, because the reason I think that the rollback problem fails, even on a naturalistic determinism, is if it's true that in moments of serious cognitive chaos, when you're trying to make a strong decision. Now, this is a defeater. I'm not saying this is definitely true. I'm saying if this is even possibly true, and there's some evidence to think it might be the case, then then it means the claim that the rollback problem defeats libertarian free will fails. And so the idea is that if it's true that during your cognitive chaos, there is some kind of quantum indeterminacy amplified up to the level of your choices, then yes, it would be the case that in other circumstances you would do otherwise. But it would also be the case because, and that's because of the indeterminacy that's an ingredient in your choosing process, though not your entire choosing process. Um, you would choose otherwise in some cases, and it wouldn't be random completely because you would be able to explain why you did what you did. Uh, so for more on that, you can check out my debate with um, Dan Barker uh, or several other videos I've made on this topic. But that's how I would, that even, if, even on naturalistic atheism, I think I could give a defeater there that shoots down the scary part of the rollback problem. On the other hand, as a Christian, I, I believe God knows how to put that indeterminacy in the right place at the right time. And so you get the same result much simpler and cleaner on, uh, on Christianity. So that, there's my answer to that question. Um, yes, inspiring philosophy is spamming the chat. Was. I'm reading White's The Potter's Freedom. It's not very good at all. No, it's not. I wasn't a fan of it, um, personally. It was, is, it, it was another, and James White has good books. I mean, uh, of course, you always start at the top with the King James Only controversy, and he's got, you know, the Forgotten Trinity. He's got some good books. But again, it's the subject matter, and then I thought most of his arguments fall flat and aren't very good and, uh, for that. But that's that's what you get. Um, Jose. kind of why I think this. Jose wants to know, awesome. is the Christians Do It Better shirt ever coming out? I, ditto. Braxton. <laughs> that would be a rated PG-13 type shirt. No, it wouldn't. 
people still asking our view on eschatology. I guess we hadn't answered yet at that point. Oh, yeah. Luke Pixler's here and says, appreciate your ministry, guys. Do you guys have a favorite? You have favorite fiction books? Absolutely. Thank you for the question. Uh, thank you. I love that. I, I, okay. Favorite fiction books. Thank you for making it plural so I can mention more than one. Of course, we have to start with uh, Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. Great. That's up there. Um, favorites of mine, in addition to that, I love the Dune, uh, Frank Herbert's, uh, the Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson stuff. It's okay. But the Frank Herbert's Dune, his books, fantastic. Um, I am a big fan of the Dark Tower series by Stephen King and The Stand. Um, those are great uh, works of fiction. Uh, I love anything Dickens is fantastic. You should go read Dickens. Um, so those would be among my favorites. And I do like C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. I'll throw that in. I like that better than Narnia. I'm not, I mean, I think they're fantastic. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood End is a phenomenal sci-fi book um, that I highly recommend everyone. Even C.S. Lewis said everyone should go read it. Uh, so that's great. Um, I, I still, I mean, I like some of the, the older works of fiction. Um, George Orwell's work, uh, Animal Farm especially, uh 1984 is not quite for me what animal farm is but it's close um what else would be among my favorites do you consider this to be good radio jonathan no but i consider it to be a good question because i like questions that are not always what do you think the bible says about this or what about what atheists said about that what are good fiction books i think it's important for people to read the c.s lewis space trilogy Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was a great one to me. I really appreciate it. Okay. Um, I'm going to answer this. There's a guy here. Who I also, this is for Chris Fisher. Um, Chris Fisher, because I know he, I, I actually am going to admit in Cabo, my guilty pleasure, and Chris Fisher hates this kind of stuff, but I actually do like the Bronte Sisters books. So, and start with Wuthering Heights. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, right. Now, you we're go gonna, ahead and we're you answer, need to answer that question. I did point. answer that question. What was your your The Chronicles said the of space, Adonai? No, I said the Space Trilogy. That's your only favorite books? That's all I'm going to talk about because nobody cares. He cares. He got his answer. He paid money for that answer. And he got his answer. He got a lecture on it. <laughs> uh, Adonis Jackson. Now, he's asked several questions, so I'm just going to answer a couple of them here. Um... Does Matthew 10, 7 through 8 uh, imply, I think I know where you're going, but 10, 7, and 8 imply See, if I was still talking about books, that Christian books and resources should be offered Googling free. stuff in the middle of the program? Well, no, because a book is a resource that, you, that, that actually serves a further utility than you just spreading the gospel. Yeah. Uh, this had to be produced. There had to be people to produce it in a way that there could be enough of them produced that multiple people could have those same books, um, and, uh, and use them. So I, so I don't, I don't think, I, I just think it's the same question we get with our seminary. You shouldn't be charging for your school because you're teaching the Bible and you should, you know, and also, you know, we it's don't freely given for the Bible. We don't charge anyone religion. to teach the Bible. We do charge people to grade their work, to grant them a degree, to, uh, put together, PowerPoints and programs and book recommendations and all these kind of things for them and then shepherd them through a process that will result in them getting a degree. Uh, but the Bible teaching part, we don't charge for that. 
Yeah, and churches don't charge for it either. But no, books and resources, um, you know, a lot of work goes in that. People when was Matthew sixteen twenty eight fulfilled? We discussed that earlier, I think. Um, yeah. No, we Questions. discussed Matthew 24, verse 34. Oh, this, well, this is some standing here, right? What is it? Matthew 16. Some of y'all won't taste death before. That's how he said it too. Some of y'all won't taste death. So Jesus was from Nashville? Nash, Nash, yeah. I was going to do something with Nazareth. It didn't work. Nashville. Yeah, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before you eat before they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. No, oh, we have uh, the same, I same answer. Yeah. I mean, cause this is, this is echoing. See, people think coming means coming back here as opposed to coming into his kingdom. Uh, it's kind or of coming in judgment. Yeah. Kind of a vindication language echoing the book of Daniel's imagery of the son of man. Um, so as strange as, as the language sounds, it's actually um, talking about, the coming into his kingdom, not coming from heaven to earth, but more eschatological. Does scripture prohibit women from being deacons? No. And I'm a complementarian. Said with sass. Um, uh, and Phoebe is a prominent deacon in the Bible. So I mean, the Bible discusses a woman deacon, doesn't even call her a deaconess. This is deacon Phoebe, a deacon. So that's in Romans chapter 16, verse one and two. So, uh, no, if I miss some of your questions, I mean, I'm really if sorry. there's a problem with it, then obviously the Bible has a problem with it, but there's not a problem with it according to the Bible. And there might be some cultural problems with it. Mike Winger's here and he's got to go on in a few minutes. Yeah, he's probably being, not here now, but he said baby corn. What baby, baby oil. corn? That's where the corn He's following to, the train of thought. Yeah, correctly. We, need to, we need to get off so that Mike can, so people can go watch. Mike. He does wait for us each week to make sure that we're off before he starts. Well, he's got four <laughs> minutes, so let's be kind and get off. We've been here for two hours. All right. Thank work. you all. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Th thank you, everyone that showed up. And especially, we really appreciate it. And hung the in there to us prattle on and, and on um, and on for two hours. Here. Pritchett, you don't care about too many things. That's true. <laughs> that, that, yeah. There's gazillions and gazillions of things in this world. I don't care about a great deal. <laughs> you know what I care about, Jonathan? What? You. I care about you, and I care about our audience who would sit through this and listen to people like me and you uh, talk. And even What kind of people, the people are these? Great people. In yeah. Mind, but not as great as the ones who give us money. For them, they're even... You can buy my love. It's not, it's for sale. Okay? So I love the people who give us, because they don't have to do that, and they choose to do that. And so I choose to honor them with bumping their questions to the front of the list. And with that, we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Go watch Winger. <laughs> <laughs>